And welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where a bunch of friends in Philadelphia get together to talk about movies. This theme recently, this month, we've been talking about robot movies and humans' relationship with robots. And we'll be continuing that with our pick today. But before we dive into today's theme, how's everyone doing? I'm here with Dave, Sam, and Connor. How are you all doing? Doing a-okay. It's uh, it's hot once again. I was about to say, in the midst of this never-ending heat wave, are we all staying cool, finding time to watch some content? The main thing I've been watching is uh, Loki, the Marvel show. Uh, As of this recording, episode five just premiered today. Uh, It is excellent so far. Can't wait to see how it concludes. Yeah, I've watched the first two episodes of that, and it is very well done. Makes me really wish that... Marvel decided to just continue making these TV shows because they're really able to explore the characters in such a different way and actually like give you stuff that's in the comics, which is nice. Um, but it be what it be. Um, I also last week, I think we I, we talked about um, me watching the murders at the White House farm. I finished Mm -hmm. watching that and it is very good. And I really like what they did. They left you questioning whether or not the person who um, was convicted of the crime, if they actually did it and if they did it alone. So I thought it was really well done. That's on HBO. Yeah. I uh, enjoyed Christine's alternate title of murders on the uh, White House lawn. You know, it's like when somebody says something to you and then you immediately have this image in your mind of what you think it is. And then you you think for an additional two seconds and you're like, no, 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 surely it's not that. That was sort of the mental process I went through as Sam was uh, explaining (laughs) the show. And Sam, speaking of things that we talked about last week that you've seen two episodes of, or I guess it would have been two weeks ago now when we were discussing Pacific Rim, I understand uh, you uh, you gave something a try on a, on a repeated dare that I offered. Yeah, I, it's it was really the dare that did it. <laughs> I should have known. <laughs> it was the, the text I received that was, I dare you, dare you to watch... Um, Evangelion, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I watched the first two episodes and I am intrigued. I haven't watched any more, but that's mostly because I have like not a lot of time and I'm exhausted. But I I like the idea of it, obviously, because it's, you know, like Pacific Rim. I'm, I'm sure, I, like chicken and egg, I'm sure this came first. But um, yeah, I liked it so far. And Dave, I understand that you have now watched it in entirety again well almost i mean like as soon as i sent that text i also sent a backup text being like you know i probably ought to keep up as well and like revisit this uh with someone who's seeing it for the first time so i can keep up uh but then that first night i watched the first two episodes and then the third and the fourth and the fifth and decided like all right well let's get up to the introduction of this one major character so i watched eight episodes that night uh watched i think like another eight the following day and now i'm up to episode 23 um or, or just finished episode 23 which devotees of the series know is pretty shattering so i'm um i'm a little bit emotionally exhausted once again from this series but it's been great to go back to i think it's probably the last time i'll go back for a little while because i have rewatched it i think this will be number four 
So it's probably probably enough for a little while, but it has been nice to go back to after a little pause. I'll be pretty devastating. (laughs) One of the greatest gifts of 2021 is that, Sam, you're watching Evangelion. It's quite a gift. It was the dare. The dare got me. Who knew that's (laughs) all you had to do? I mean, after all of that text exchange, I was like, I should probably it's I'm due for a rewatch as well. So. Uh, maybe over the course of the next couple weeks, as uh, Sam, you progress through the show, um, we can we can have a little Evangelion check in. You know, like it's like part one is what's going on in our lives, and then part two of our conversation is what's going on in Shinji's life. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so we'll God. just have like a two part check in. <laughs> That'll make us feel better about what's going on in our lives in a way. You know, for comparison, um, yeah. <laughs> We'll also say I will never agree to do an Eva episode on this show, but I am into the idea of check-ins. Yeah, there's, we don't there's have too to much, go... There's too much to unpack in an episode. That's too involved. I would never uh, want to put that on that the, the weight of expectation <laughs> on anyone's shoulders. Um, so, yeah, I think a casual check-in could probably do the mm-hmm. trick. Uh, as far as movies I've seen, I have been enjoying... So the Criterion channel that I subscribe to is doing a old noir showcase, which is fun, like a neo-noir, an old noir movie uh, showcase. And so I've been watching a couple of those. Um, A notable one was a movie that I'd never heard of, but that I recommend called Blowout. And it's a young John Travolta. It's by Brian De Palma and it's set in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And John Travolta plays a uh, sound guy for horror films that are being filmed in Philadelphia. And when he's capturing sound effects uh, for a movie, he ends up witnessing uh, a car crash and possibly like a suspected murder. And then he it's like he's got to crack the case and it is fast paced. And John Travolta is so wonderful in it, too. And it's and it's got uh, 1981 shots of philadelphia so it's like fun uh going through philadelphia so yeah that's uh a movie i recommend Um, i accidentally ripped off elements of that idea in uh something that i wrote in a creative writing class in college oh fun fun and so then someone was like oh well this is kind of in that and i was like oh really so i watched it and was like that's pretty good shit i better rewrite this (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean it's really fun and you know uh it's it's also there are elements of it that are pretty like uh, sort of self-referential, like pretty funny. Like it doesn't take itself too seriously in a wonderful mm-hmm. way. Um, so yeah. Anywho. Yeah. Finding time to, to watch some, watch some movies and beat the heat. So today, this morning, this evening, this afternoon, we're going to be talking about, uh, our last movie in Robot Month. And this movie is the 1999 seminal classic sci-fi, The Matrix. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about this movie and um, return to it. I watched it like maybe six months ago, rewatched it six months ago after not having seen it in a very long time and was just so floored about floored by um, how well it, it 
stood the test of time that I was excited that it fit into our robot theme uh, because as we'll be talking about robots completely take over the world (laughs) and thought that this was actually an interesting movie to kind of round out our our theme. Um, The movie, as I said, was filmed in 1999, directed by Lana and Lily Wachowski, starring Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, Carrie Ann Moss, and Hugo Weaving. For those of you who have not seen The Matrix, the movie presents a 2199, uh, the year, it's in, set in the year 2199, uh, this dystopian future in which robots have completely taken over the world, trapped humanity inside a simulated reality, and have now harvested, are harvesting human bodies as, primar- as a primary energy source. So... Our hero, Keanu Reeves, plays Thomas Anderson, uh, who goes by Neo uh, in the hacker world and in the rest of the movie. Uh, So he's a savvy computer programmer who is invited to join a rebellion against the robots and liberate humanity um, from this simulation that makes humans think it's actually 1999. So together uh, with the rebellion leader, Morpheus, played by... uh, Lawrence Fishburne, a wonderful Lawrence Fishburne, uh, and the ship captain, uh, Trinity, played by Carrie Ann Moss, also the wonderful Carrie Ann Moss. And then uh, along with the ship's ragtag crew, Neo must battle the robots, uh, simulation army of agents led by Agent Smith, played by the wonderfully sinister Hugo Weaving. So there's the plot. Uh, I, I, as I mentioned, I thought it was a wonderful movie to kind of close out Robot Month because we, throughout this theme, have been talking about different sort of iterations of ro- robots and types of robots and also different types of relationships between uh, robots and humans and exploring themes like friendship and empathy versus fear and violence of, uh, and fear of technology and mechanization. That's uh, why it's such theme. a perfect theme for you, Christine. So I know you'd be very interested in the topics. Yeah. Yeah. And we've been talking about like uh, human autonomy versus uh, sort of, yeah, the mechanization of technology. And this movie takes us all the way into a future in which, as we talked in the synopsis, we've covered that robots have completely uh, taken over the world. And but it's still uh, an exploration of self and what does it mean uh, to explore the self in an automated world of rules and strictures and uh, uh, sort of these mechanized limitations. So The Matrix is, is a movie I was like, wow, felt a little bit overwhelmed to cover because it has such lore around it and has such a, such a legacy and it, it, has so many different like readings and interpretations. Um, so much has been written about it and discussed about it. Uh, everything from anti-capitalist narrative and a critique of surveillance and exploitation of human labor to an allegory for trans experiences. Um, the director, Lily Wachowski, is a trans woman along with her sister, Lana, uh, who actually confirmed in a 2020 Netflix interview um, confirmed the ideas around the movie being um, a reflection of, of the trans experience, especially citing the character of Switch, mm-hmm. uh, who was originally written as a gender-fluid character. 
Um, and of course, there's the unfortunate co-opting of this movie by uh, the Republican Party, uh, the idea of taking the red pill. Incels uh, mostly. Incels yeah, mostly, yeah, so it, that it, is pretty infuriating. But so this movie definitely has a huge scale to it uh, as far as its presence in sort of the movie cultural zeitgeist. So I was, it's, it's very overwhelming to take on, but I'm really excited to talk to you all about this movie. Um, so to kind of get uh, the senses of people's relationships with this movie, has everyone seen The Matrix before, even though I already know the answer to this question? Um, <laughs> I, I am a newly watched Matrix person, as if you've listened to episode 100 um, a couple months ago, watched it for the first time back then, and lovely to go back and revisit so soon after. I, uh, for listeners out there, we were giving Connor a lot of shit for not having seen The Matrix, <laughs> especially because it was a movie that I thought you would enjoy, and so you finally had seen it, and so it's it's nice to return to it with you. Um, how about everyone else? What What's kind of your, your, your background with The Matrix? So this was my second time seeing it, and... My first time was when we were clearly all feeling the Keanu-sans. Um, it's definitely not a movie that would have ever been on in my household. My parents do not care about sci-fi at all. And, uh, you know, the movie came out in 99. I was eight years old. I don't really have a lot of control of the things that we watch. And then because it never really was on my radar, I just never thought of it and what's interesting is watching it the first watching it the second time how much I already knew about the movie without actually seeing the movie because of how often it's referenced or how often bits and pieces of the movie are redone in other things so it's nice to finally recognize that and being like ah yes I understand that reference and I'm sure there's some some of that that we'll go back to, Sam, because this movie, as you mentioned, has been referenced and parodied countless times. I, I think it was 20-something times within the first three years of its release, uh, something crazy like that, in, in various films cited via, like, pop culture parody and everything else. Um, it's also really interesting to hear the two of you talk about it as, like, re with relatively fresh eyes, uh, for the most part. It's a movie that I remember... It was, like, one of those, like, um, junior high sleepovers where... You know, there was the pizza, there was like six kids. We rented a movie from Blockbuster and it happened to be The Matrix. And like right around the time that we have like the red and blue pill conversation, I remember like four of the friends of the sleepover just sort of like making their way down to the basement to play like N64 and just like, all right, we're bored with this. And me and like a friend of a friend, this kid I didn't know, we're just sitting there like still intrigued by the movie. And then like an hour and a half later, the other kids came up from downstairs and were like, you're still watching this? And we were just like, yeah, we're still watching this. You have to watch this right now. And like, it was like one of the first movies I ever saw where when it was over, like I had like my own, the reality I was living in was suspect. Like it was the first art that so thoroughly explains the concept of uh, an entrapped illusion uh, as a presentation of reality that I'd ever seen that it, it, it was like scram it, my brains were like scrambled eggs after this movie and I was just in shock and totally adored it I still totally adore it for all those reasons and um, 
I I used to think it was a perfect movie. I do have some things that I'd like to talk about here during this episode that I think are pretty imperfect and pretty obvious if you give it a little bit of thought. But I mean, beyond that, on the whole, it's still an incredible spectacle that uh, I think really holds up in a, in, a, in a really towering way because of its its mixture of like totally insane practical effects and stunt work merged really harmoniously with relatively unshowy CG, at least uh, by modern standards. So I don't know. It's it's a really it's a, it's a hell of a movie, and I've been looking forward to talking about it for a long time. So I've got a lot of thoughts, but I don't have a lot of notes because I figure everything will remind me of something I love about this movie. So uh, looking forward to discussing it more. Two thoughts. One uh, is something I had just been thinking about as I was writing up notes for this movie uh, is who's doing some research into the new innovations and technology that the movie was using to capture different types of scenes like the slow-mo and the mix of practical and digital effects and everything. And it's just interesting to be sort of diving deep into analyzing a movie that explores the relationship between like humans and technology and robots and this movie, like the way it was made, uh, like really being a wonderful incorporation of the like combination of like human practical effects or like practical effects aren't human, but like human made pra- practical effects and really what was then at the time developments in new sort of cutting edge uh, digital digital effects technology. Um, so that is something that I don't have a lot of knowledge about. And so would love if you have more context to explore that. Dave, if, like, please jump in with those more detailed explanations. Yeah, I've got another some thing, stuff on that front. Yeah, yeah, please. <laughs> um, another thing is like, yeah, this movie, uh, my first experience was it with it was actually, and I might've mentioned this on the podcast before, but um, my, my, it was like my, one of my brother's favorite movie, or it was my brother, one of his favorite movies. And he first showed me this movie because he had taped it on my mom's Jane Fonda workout tape. And I remember this being the biggest argument in my in my household because she's like what is my workout tape and my brother's like I actually recorded the matrix over this but I he just I didn't even know what this movie was I just saw this sort of like bootleg copy on this VHS of this movie and he's like you got to watch this movie it'll change your like it'll change your life so I was like pretty young it was like okay like sure I'll watch this movie and it was like very cool and very intense but for me, being introduced to the movie with like a bootleg VH te- H te- uh, tape sort of added to this allure and mystique of this like only a few people know the secret of the Matrix. So I thought I was like being brought in. I didn't like have context for this being like a like multi-million dollar movie. I had the context of like, oh, my brother's sharing me this like with me this very secret information on this VHS tape. Like when the Anyhow. movie ends, it's just seven days. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was like gonna die. <laughs> gonna, you know, have to join the rebellion. It was kind of a <laughs> situation. But yeah, so it's kind of fun, like, yeah, getting people's different stories of like if they were introduced to it early, like how yeah, how they ended up watching The Matrix for the first time. So let's just get like right into it as far as uh, some production background. Uh, it's kind of fun reading all the people who were 
in the running for different characters, which I didn't realize. Like Neo, like Will Smith was uh, a number one prospect for the movie. He actually turned down the movie to do the Wild Wild West, mm-hmm. um, which I think was kind of an interesting. I mean, hey, man versus robots, kind of the same <laughs> themes. And yeah, Nick, Nicolas Cage, I didn't realize was in the running. Johnny mm-hmm. Depp, uh, I think was Wachowski's, according to Wikipedia, first pick initially. And this was Carrie Ann Moss's breakout role. She was like, I, like, and she's so stunning in it that, uh, yeah, it was, it was really cool to, it was really interesting to know that this really was um, her first big, her first big role. Um, and, and Trinity, when cast, uh, originally was uh, Jada Pinkett Smith, but she and Keanu didn't have uh, the energy that they felt they needed uh, between the two as actors, which is interesting because she returns within this, the latter two films. Yeah, so she she ends up picking up the uh, the Matrix train later on in the series. And I'll say, I have seen maybe a third of Matrix Reloaded and have not seen the third or part two or whatever you want to call it, the third movie um, so I really don't have a lot of context for like how the story evolves. Um, I've heard, all, I think all I need to know as to whether it's worth <laughs> watching the next two, but don't before, worry about it. Well, don't worry about it. like there are, uh, yeah, I mean, the fourth one is in pre-production, I think, or like mm-hmm. in the midst of production. So I feel like around the time that comes out, I might watch, uh, reloaded and the third one. Yeah, I rewatched the, the second one today um, and won't watch the third one again. Yeah, I, I imagine we'll return to that after we've, we've kind of walked through why this this first installment is great as kind of its own standalone. But but yeah, I've got my thoughts on the sequels and I, I think they're quite bad. And um, I'm not necessarily looking forward to a fourth installment, but we'll see. Uh, well, I mean, as far as other uh, sort of background or produ- production notes, the movie was filmed uh, mostly in Australia in Fox Studios, um, which which I thought was kind of interesting. I didn't know. And it made a shit ton of money. Uh, I don't have the numbers off uh, the top of my head, but it was definitely, definitely a hit. And uh, oh, does, does Connor have the numbers? I do have the numbers. Yes, the Connor always has the numbers. Yep. <laughs> Budget of reportedly $63 million with a box office of $465.3 million worldwide. Yeah, pretty resounding success. And a um, about 63% of the box office came from overseas, which is enormous, especially in 1999, when the international markets were generally kind of still being established before they were a you know, huge like juggernaut you know, market that we think of today. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about kind of the evolution of how movies have been marketed overseas. And yeah, like that not always being uh, included in box office success or even like, yeah, the, li- the limitations early on of getting movies uh, overseas. Well, and what I think is interesting about that is I feel like a lot of times sci-fi movies don't do as well. Like this is a pretty heavy, you know, heady concept sci-fi movie. And I think it just speaks to the movie's quality of how much of the storytelling can be told visually and how much of the story is, you know, these complex ideas are told simply and incredibly visually that any audience can really engage with the story, engage with the characters, and really um, you know, fall into this world that the Wachowski set up. 
Yeah, and it was a script that a lot of a lot of producers were very enthused about, but they figured couldn't be filmed because they they described it as a movie that quote no one this this great screenplay that quote no one understands. Um, so the studio did insist on like a lot of injection of expository dialogue, which uh, you know I have a storied problem with as we've discussed, but like I, I think it's it, it is absolutely necessary for this kind of a movie to work. The expository dialogue. Yeah. I mean, so, it, it does a great job also of showing us some of that unfold as well. There's a good balance, but it, this movie requires a lot of explanation. And so I don't hold that against it. However, uh, you don't get an exposition dump right at the beginning. And I think that's something we talked about with Pacific Rim was like, it is great to like be thrown into a movie or like to be given kind of the background right initially, uh, sort of the initial context and then be thrown into the movie. But I think with The Matrix, it's wonderful because you're really just dropped right in with no context at all. And it's not until the the conversation that Morpheus has with Neo in which he takes him through exactly what is happening to Neo, what like what world he's pulling him out of uh, and the relationship between the real world where robots have taken over humans and the simulated creation, uh, simulated reality of the matrix in which humanity thinks it's 1999. And that's something I was noting is that you're not only dropped in, but really uh, Trinity is the one is the character that really opens the story um, because there's the first like action sequence as uh, Trinity is trying to escape from the the agents who are uh, within the with like Agent Smith who are within the Matrix trying to do the robots bidding and capture all the rebels and ensure that they stop uh, stop trying to um, mess with mess with the Matrix and it also establishes it not only establishes Trinity as such a strong character um, and like all of her amazing stunts and you have the iconic jump where she's just hovering in the air, right about to kick, uh, kick an agent that just looks so good. But you also uh, see Morpheus established as like the, the, the leader, the boss, just like such a, such a great boss. And now that I've watched Hannibal, I'm like, Lawrence Fishburne is such a good manager. (laughs) Such a good boss. But anyhow, yeah. There's a ton about this opening sequence that does some great stage setting that that really doesn't explain exactly what's going to happen, but with repeated watches really does does illuminate how 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 much foreshadowing and how much establishing context there is. The first conversation we have is between Cypher and Trinity over the phone line, which we understand to be monitored by someone, uh, where they're basically outlining the the prophecy as like, oh, have you been wa- you've been watching him? You like watching him, don't you? And such and such. It's like, we're going to get him killed. So obviously, they're watching someone and there's some high stakes involved. When the agents first arrive, they override the authority of the police immediately without question. And when the police ask something to the effect of like, what, it's just one girl. You're going to go up there and get her. And we have men up there already. And she, he just says, your men are already dead, illustrating her power. We also have, um, you know, this, this great line when they're in this chase and like the, the cops see Trinity and then the agent jumping from building to building. And he says, instead of like, holy shit, or like, like, oh my God, just some exclamation. It's that's impossible, which really confirms and cements the idea that what we're seeing is something fantastical and outside the realm of reality, even to the characters. 
And it does such a good job of getting that out of the way immediately by showing and not telling, which is really great. Yeah, so a, a, a bang and start that yeah gives you contours of characters and, as you said, Dave, lays out clues as to what sort of universe this is and what are the how are these characters challenging the boundary or like pushing the boundaries and the limitations of in interesting ways of this of this universe. Um, and then so yeah, then we're introduced to to Thomas Anderson or Neo and Keanu as this computer whiz hacker. Uh, his hacker alias is Neo. And um, he's just, yeah, living his his sad life. <laughs> but then he gets called. Yeah, I mean, like, what do we what do we think of kind of the introduction of of Keanu Reeves's character and how like how, like revisiting this movie how do we feel Keanu embodies the character of Neo? First of all, I love Keanu forever. He can do no wrong in my <laughs> eyes. Um, to me, to me. Um, but, you know, there's something so interesting. Like, once you've already seen The Matrix, so you know what's going to happen and you, you're familiar with the lore, um, what we see of Neo's life in the beginning from, you know, when he wakes up and is pathetic and um, goes to whatever party bar place um, with those people and then he goes to work, like, it almost seems like half-life anyway. So you're already starting to question, like, well, like, is this actually reality? Because it, it, it seems not. So I don't know. I, I thought that was something easy to pick up on my second watch around. Yeah, I agree with that, Sam, especially in the sense that like when we first meet him, there's so much imagery kind of cluing us into who the character is as well. Again, seeing not telling is that, you know, the first thing we see on his computer is literally the word searching. And then we kind of zoom out and we see that he's exhausted by this constant like uh, hacker presence or like constantly navigating digital reality in search of answers to a reality that he finds an experience to be dissatisfactory instinctually which makes a lot of sense for his character as obviously as the film plays out. But yeah, just, just that what, what appears to be subtlety the first time around, but then is so obvious every time since has been that just the text searching. It's just like, it establishes that this character is looking for something more and they're waiting for something to kind of bring their life into purpose because they find themselves at odds with the reality they live in for unexplained reasons. And even though uh, characters jump in between the matrix and the real world through like phones and phone, like the phone line and getting to the phone is always so important, which I think is such like every time he's in a phone booth or they pick up a cell phone or I'm like, oh, this wonderful, like weird mix of really antiquated technology. and like just oh, feels so 1999. But, um, but really, even though they use the phone lines to jump between worlds, uh, the like, uh, computer screens play really important visual portals uh, that represent kind of the threshold between these two worlds. And really the movie open opens, I believe, with the the, the falling green uh, sort code. Of the code, thank you. Uh, and like overlaid dialogue. So you really are introduced to the screen as like an important visual uh, before you're introduced to anything else. And later on, I love the repetition of screens, uh, whether they're like surveillance screens or they're screens that sh like represent 
um, like, yeah, like plans or codes or, or um, different layout, like layouts for different like escapes that the team is about to make, but uh, definitely sc- like visual screens definitely play a big part uh, in kind of establishing those realms. And one thing that's really neat too about the, the you know, every, I think everybody born at, uh, you know, up to 1999 or like, or at least everyone who's experienced the movie since has a knowledge of that scrolling code, that green text that just falls down in these sort of like vertical columns. Uh, the matrix code was actually uh, coded from uh, the actual text itself is uh, sushi, various sushi recipes. That's I read, I saw it. I read, saw it on Wikipedia. I was like, Oh, that's very interesting. <laughs> so that's kind of great, especially because yeah. it's such a visual element that like is so, like relentless and all encompassing in the sense that it, it, it is the code that defines this imagined reality and is just sort of like seen as these descending columns that are super complicated. But at the end of the day, they're sushi recipes, which is kind of great. Uh, for a while, our like house's desktop, that was the screensaver. Yep, and so everybody had that screensaver. They at it forever. <laughs> trying to okay. understand, and it turns out the answer is sushi. Trying to crack the code, Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we're introduced to Neo, we're introduced to Trinity, we're introduced to Morpheus, uh, and then we're also introduced, okay, so there's a wonderful scene in Neo's office where he's, he's just sitting alone, he's like called in by his boss, he's like, you gotta show up to work, kind of the like stupid ass uh, performance report or whatever, so you got to come into to work and clearly Neo is so checked out. And at one point you just see him like not even a computer on, just looking down, sitting in a chair, just staring at his keyboard, <laughs> doing nothing. It's yeah. So then he gets a call from Morpheus and, he, and Morpheus is like, there are people after you. You got to run. And Neo's like, what? And so then we're introduced <laughs> to more of the agents and then uh hugo weaving as agent smith i feel like and i was gonna ask you all kind of what characters you get most invested in when you watch the matrix i'm not necessarily invested in the character of of agent smith but i feel like in this watch i was just floored by how good hugo weaving's performance is he just nails the sinister tone of the agent and there's some scenes the scene with him and Morpheus towards the end of the movie where he's interrogating Morpheus and he's like I I want out too there's just more facets to Agent Smith's character than I thought that there were actually and so I was like "Mm, this is really interesting anyhow I'm all about Hugo Weaving these days any thoughts about (laughs) Hugo Weaving's performance (laughs) When thinking about the Matrix, I think a lot about the original Star Wars in terms of sort of hero's journey, call to action. There's a lot of Joseph Campbell uh, inspired work at play. And I think he's such a relentless villain, somebody who can seemingly appear anywhere, somebody who has limitless resources is the right word because he's a computer program. He can go kind of literally anywhere and follows Neo, can't seem to be defeated, is this enormous obstacle that is really greatly threaded in the beginning and continues to pop up throughout. And Neo has to find new ways to overcome this enormous monolithic obstacle. Yeah, I think both both the the agents as programs, like almost as sentient programs within the Matrix as administrators and and uh, and sort of like um, you know influences of order and authoritarianism are are really great, especially because they 
they can, like, you know, as the movie explains, shift in and out of other host bodies that are connected to the matrix so as to appear anywhere. But they are also somewhat answerable to matrix bound physics. I mean, like they're, they, they manipulate it in such a way that obviously they can move faster than anyone. They can, you know, they can, uh, uh, we see them like do these physical feats of like jumping with like uh, exaggerated ease, but ultimately they're still using firearms that are, still are bound by the rules of the matrix, which is an interesting like limitation on this kind of like omnipresence uh, as a threat that that is really thoughtful and really cool. And then Agent Smith himself emerges as an aberration of that program where he is self-aware to the degree that he wants to remove himself from the program entirely because he's begin, become disgusted with the reality that they have created to placate a, subs, a, a subservient humanity. So there's so much going on within the concept of agents and Agent Smith specifically that are so cool. And just in, because it the dialogue doesn't really explore it a lot, but the, but I think the performance combined with, uh, an economical, like revealing of clues makes you realize, yeah, that like, while they, they are like part of, they are representing kind of the authoritarian robots. They're like still agents of this, like, other system and so they're trying to figure out like i might be reading into it too much but like they're they're also like working for somebody <laughs> you know and like yeah. they like and uh smith has to like do his job even though he's fucking scary and uh is horrific but yeah just little things like that i think really make um even the villain characters pretty fascinating and I, and I just love weaving's delivery when he goes mr anderson and i never for the longest time i never knew that hugo weaving was australian i think just because uh of knowing him as as agent smith and then i samara weaving is his niece which i thought was just such a nice uh i don't know Nice family um, connection. And she's such a great uh, actor. Christine, you mentioning Mr. Anderson, I have to say this. Um, you know how like sixth and seventh graders are just like fucking weird? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember in seventh grade, my math class in particular, um, one of my classmates, like when it was very silent or just like, as an answer when our teacher was like, okay, so what's this, what's, what's this and this and this, um, one of my classmates would always go, Mr. Anderson. And I had no idea why he was doing it. And I never, I never asked, I never cared. And then when I watched the matrix <laughs> matrix for the first time, I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> that was it. Oh, he just has so many classic lines. Like the, this, Mr. Anderson, is the sound of inevitability. Oh, it's just, yeah, all of those lines are so iconic. And I don't think anybody else but Hugo Weaving could deliver it with such such punch and such scary uh, vo- voice work. <laughs> and apparently part of the, the, the vocal characterization for the character was something that he, he did a lot of research into, like, 1950s and 1960s era newscasters. Um, sort of uh, highlighting like, you know, the institutional banality of authoritarianism in a lot of ways, which is a really thoughtful character choice for him and one that really 
shines through pretty much the whole time because I mean he is so soft spoken and and so um kind of distance in a way that you know implies a, a sort of character a villain that has the edge at any given moment except when he's having the conversation with Morpheus which I'm sure we'll get to at some point where he does kind of break down and reveals ironically almost humanity despite being uh, like a very human frustration about being a program which is really yeah cool. yeah um yeah so speaking of Morpheus, uh, let's let's get into Lawrence Fishburne as Morpheus. Uh, so Keanu receives the call, is like, what the fuck, is getting chased. And then he actually gets taken in for interrogation by the agents, gets planted with this really scary um, bug, literally bugged. Yeah. Um, and then he's uh, saved by... Um, Switch and Trinity and the rest of the crew, they get him out of there and they take him to go see. Oh, yeah. And they remove the bug in a very wonderfully graphic body horror suction way. That's It's got some like, yeah, this movie has some like heavy Cronenberg energy at times. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like, not the least of which, because, you know, they relied on practical effects. Connor, as I was texting you earlier, uh, earlier this week was uh, that 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 scene in which the you know the bug is actually implanted into his stomach and the scene where it's uh retracted uh by switch and trinity it was actually a prosthetic stomach that they made of keanu so it adds to like the physical you know voluminous reality of it being something that you know it's 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 a torso it's a rendered torso uh that exists in rubber form that's being like penetrated or like antagonized by this inner force very aliens or something i don't know there's a lot going on there that's so cool and i'm so glad they've opted for practical effects with it well, and I was just about to bring that up in a movie that is lauded as, you know, a groundbreaking special effects feature has great physical moments as well, like you just mentioned. So it's really like knowing when to use those, those tricks and when to do something more old fashioned just makes everything feel realer. As opposed to the sequels, which I'll get to at the end. So they're brought to uh, they're brought to Morpheus, who then you have the like the classic Morpheus basically laying out the world to Neo, being like, Neo, you've been in the Matrix. Guess what? The Matrix is a simulation. Everything you think you know is basically a dream or is a program. And actually it's 2199 and you're like in a in a mucus sack. <laughs> Just like existing so that you can provide robots with energy be then be liquefied and then fed back to humans which i think is just such an amazing detail <laughs> it's so horrible it's barbaric yeah forgive me if i'm wrong but in his kind of initial explanation it's sort of he doesn't quite lay it all out right. when they're still in the, which i think is such a great touch because i think it'd be so easy to expedition dump exposition dump for five minutes while they're in the world, sort of like, I'm going to reveal the truth to you and nothing but the truth, you know, you know paraphrasing. And I think it's a great sort of like teasing out for the audience and for, you know, through Neo, the idea of like, you know, something's up. We know he's in a simulated reality, but the full extent is slowly teased over the course of like 10 or 15 minutes. Great point. Great point. I, I have an, a question and, and this might be something that I missed through my watches. Like, who was person zero that realized I'm an assimilation and ended up 
on the Nebuchadnezzar or, or, or wherever else they go. So like, who, who is that? None of them. I mean, the first person who would have realized it, they, they say at one point they've been fighting this fight for like a hundred years. So this is generation upon generation of like rescued road, rogue agents who are brought out of the system by uh, the initial person who was dissatisfied with that system, who I don't recall. I don't remember if the trilogy covers who that is. Because, yeah, he's he uh, Morpheus mentions him. And he's like, oh, this person, I guess he like found a glitch in the system or whatever, because it was like, I guess a program was was young. It was new and it had bo- or issues. And so this human found a like uh, like, yeah, a glitch in it and was like, oh, holy shit. <laughs> I yeah, guess I'm actually re- it's very vague. But then the exciting incident of it is very as far as that history is really vaguely explained and it's over explained in the sequels where it becomes this thing where it's like well this is actually our fifth version of the matrix and every time this has happened there's been an aberration in the one who has fixed everything so we've had to reset it and all this you know you don't need it you don't need to know those answers and that's sometimes (laughs) when just a a very lean script can do can work wonders (laughs) yeah (laughs) going back to star wars you don't need to know what the rebellion, how the rebellion started, how the empire started. You got your basics, you got your antagonists, protagonists, call to action set up, and then you just rock and roll with the film. Because the more time you invest in backstory, the more you're deflating the moment, forward momentum of the current story. Yeah, so, so this is establishing not only the world, uh, but it's also giving us more about Morpheus as, as a leader and Morpheus basically Morpheus belief that Neo is the one, a nice little anagram there. And <laughs> yes. uh, he, yeah. And he basically guides you into this, this understanding is like, come with us, join our team. Uh, how, what, how do we feel about Morpheus as a character uh, and Lawrence Bishopburn's performance? Can I give one criticism real quick? Go for it. I can't stand the tiny sunglasses. What? And his big bald head. I know they're iconic, but they just bug me. And there's so many shots of like reflections of the sunglasses. And you see Neo and I'm like, I get it. You thought this looked cool, but I don't know. To me, it just really, I think Lawrence Fisher does a great job. I think Morpheus is a really interesting character. I think upon rewatch, you sort of really learn more about him, and he's a really fascinating figure to kind of focus more when you know what's happening with Neo as you rewatch it. But those tiny sunglasses, just not my favorite choice on the planet. I will say that this movie definitely is, uh, you know, it's a chicken and egg scenario as far as most people are concerned, but it's not accurate. And like the notion that like, uh, did the Matrix start this kind of like, you know, goth industrial fashion or was it influenced by goth industrial fashion? It was influenced by goth industrial fashion. These are all like precepts of like the late 80s like new wave into goth movement and into the early 1990s of like gothic industrial rave culture this stuff's been done for years it's it's not the first time we're seeing it but it's the first time pop mainstream audiences are seeing it i i would say so it is probably pretty jarring i agree but it is those are staples of an entire like cultural subgenre i fucking love the glasses and the way he puts them on he just takes the middle the bridge the nose bridge just sets them right there and they just they rest oh and yeah i guess connor you think that the the dual the pill dual images the reflections are a little bit much but i thought again with the visual thematic material it fits and i I was pretty impressed because every time they're mirror shots i always like 
always want to see like, you know, if part of the crew was caught in the mirror. And obviously, if you're a good movie, you're going to remove all that just shit digitally. But yeah, um, I'm pretty sure the sunglass images are green screened in this. Yeah, well, and pretty clearly, but, you know, not in a way that I find <laughs> distracting. I think it's, you know, it's a nice touch that, you know, other movies might have missed. And, uh, this isn't, and, th- and this isn't like a movie ruining criticism. I'm being mostly facetious, but um, just want to put that out there too for listeners. It's fair. Costume design is a very important part of any movie. Also, just re uh, re Morpheus in his introduction and his introduction to the Matrix for Neo, I think is really expertly handled because, as we say, you know, he gives him the option of the red and blue pills. He takes the red, which means that he'll be, you know, Im- he'll be disconnected from the Matrix. But he doesn't really necessarily say that. He just says, "Take the red pill, and you'll you'll come down further down the rabbit hole, or take the blue pill and wake up happily in your bed as though nothing ever happened." And then he takes the red pill, and we jump into the the consequences where we see him, you know, we see Neo, actually his his physical body for the first time via the rules of the movie emerging from his kind of like sustained cryo sleep to harvest his energy in in these farms, and suddenly we see you know a, a completely different Neo. He's he's completely hairless. Uh, Neo, uh, Keanu Reeves lost 15 pounds for this sequence, um, and shaved all of his hair for it and everything. And it really pays off because it is so jarring. It's like all of a sudden this resets the entire understood reality of the movie before it's explained. And then after that, Neo's brought on board, they revive his, his musculature and he complains that his eyes hurt and Morpheus pretty iconically says that's because you've never used them before. So it's all, all building toward this explanation, which then Morpheus provides in this exposition dump, but an exposition dump that is really animated and, and um, engaging also. Like it, it's them initially watching a TV representation of what happened before they, via this you know, uh, computer simulation they've created, Im- literally immerses them in that reality. So it transports us there as audience in the same time that the character is coming to realize all these things. Yeah, so great stylistic choices with the uh, with the white white room, uh, the camera work, and like the yeah, basically like visuals to to pair with Morpheus's explanation, so that it's not just like a boring lecture. You know, it's 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 fun and it's animated as as he as he explains it. Well, and I also just really appreciated how weird, like Dave, you brought up Keanu just looks so different. All of the, I assume all the plugs at least like were prosthetics put on his body because he's just mm-hmm. covered head to toe and cables going in and out of him, a giant, you know, neural link in the back of his head. Um, and as he's like pulling them out, he's in this like pink jello. Like it's such a gross, uh, such a gross scene. And then it's, I think it's great how there's not a quick reveal of the entire vault of humanity being stored. But once again, you're following Neo's perspective of how he's slowly absorbing all of his surroundings, first with his own body and then the larger world around him. It's a movie that really seems to understand that you can't just have the camera be a visual explanation all the time. You, you you should explain things visually rather than with expository dumps, which this movie does do well. But it also takes the time to really only limit our understanding to what the character is understanding in real time and in tandem. The only thing I... So I have I think that the visuals of this movie hold up so well, except the entire robot world. Like... Those once the movie does zoom out to show you sort of how humans are put in these pods and suck for their energy, and then the the sentinels are these scary little uh, squid like 
alien robots that are trying to attack the Nebuchadnezzar all the time. I think uh, all that looks pretty bad. <laughs> uh, and, but I, I think with the technology that they had to work with and with, I guess, not not the biggest budget for this movie, uh, like as far as the scope of the movie, I'm, I, they probably worked with a relatively smaller budget. You know, I'm sure there's some limitations, but that was the only thing that bothered me. Like the the pod world didn't look good <laughs> to me. Uh, I guess I mean, yeah, it's 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 relying on pretty limited and obvious CG to which you know by modern standards is you know relatively primitive now. Um, but I, I think it's pretty impressive in the scope and scale that they were going for. I admire yeah. the ambition, but yeah, the execution leaves a lot to be desired. That having been said, I've also seen movies, you know, like every Transformers movie. It's like you get a really good look at the robots and they look like garbage. And then when they're fighting and like engaging in action, it looks even worse because we're not able to focus on anything because there are all these individually rendered parts and all this over analytical CG uh, overemphasis. Whereas like, this is just like, they feel like voluminous things. They're convincing enough. I, I, I'll take it at face value, albeit it has aged a little bit. So let's, let's get into some of the fight scenes and choreography. I mean, um, so yeah, Neil has to train, you know, the epic training that he undergoes to be prepared physically and mentally to fight the programmed agents. Uh, Neo, uh, Morpheus takes Neo under his wing to begin his training. Neo is first programmed with all of these like martial arts moves, which is really funny. I love the when he's getting like uh, injected with uh, skills into his brain. And I was like, if only all of that were that easy. And then we have the wonderful uh, training sequence between Morpheus and Neo. And so the directors were inspired by uh, Hong Kong action cinema. And they decided to hire martial arts choreographer uh, Yen Wu Ping to work on the fight scenes and like the wire, wire work. And so um, what do we think? Yeah, what do we think about the different fighting choreography and the that play out not only in the training sequences, but in a lot of the, a lot of the fight scenes. Uh, before getting to all the stunt work and like the technicality involved, uh, Sam, it seems like you had a burning thing to say there. I did. <laughs> I did. The only thing I wanted to say was, oh, I feel like this is going to be really controversial. I think the dialogue is not great. And at one point where um, Neo is having everything downloaded and, and he has a conversation with Morpheus, he's like, I know Kung Fu. And I, I laughed out loud because it's just like not, it's not good. And there are some other moments too where I'm just like, yikes. Well, I'm not, so good, glad not good in what way? I mean... Uh, not good as like written dialogue for the character in that moment or like arguably not great that he has just had a computer program invested into his brain that ex explains the entire experiential and cultural emphasis of martial arts, which is a little bit not great, admittedly, yeah, but okay. Because <laughs> I understand his function, like, you know, they have to learn fast and it's, it's a really cool way for them to learn interesting skills as we see later on with the helicopter. Um, but but yeah, it does feel as though it cheapens, you know, the the, the long, long-standing tradition of martial arts a little bit if it can just be downloaded into your brain. But it's also, you know, hundred years in the future. I don't know, or a thousand years in the future. Eh, mixed bag. I do see though where it comes from. Whereas it's, it feels like a little bit like hokey at least, or like reductivist. It's lame. I'm sorry. But, uh, it's 
I, I think it's simplicity has a charm, but I, I, I see where you're coming from, definitely. Can we? I want to return to that thought about the dialogue maybe a little later, because overall, I was wondering, there's so much sort of philosophizing in the movie, uh, and the dialogue has to kind of present these huge themes and conflicts and tensions and a lot of the, the the dialogue sort of fully embraces this elevated language. <laughs> and I, and I do maybe as we sort of sum up our final thoughts of the movie, kind of want to know people's takes on whether that s- style of dialogue holds up and can withstand the weight of the themes that the movie really wants to delve into. Maybe we don't, uh, because Sam, yeah, your point about the dialogue made me think about that. So let's, uh, let's return to, to that, uh, ana- like, uh, assessment of the dialogue. Cause I think it's a really interesting point. But Christine, so you mentioned fight scenes. Um, I think one of my favorite scenes actually is when they are hiding from the agents and they're in the walls. Um, I think that is so cool. And I honestly, I can't think of another movie where I've seen something quite like that. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's brilliant. And it, it, it still made me feel like really, really anxious. And I love that you, you don't know where the, where they end. You're thinking, oh, well, surely like Neo and Morpheus are leading everybody down. But then it just, the camera just keeps going and you're like, oh my God. Yeah. That sequence is really great. I mean, they built a set that is like, you know, it's, it's, it's just like this narrow, narrow vertical shaft, which is them climbing within the walls, trying to escape after uh, the agent's Via Cypher's influence, he's given away their position because he's trying to turn on everyone for a lot of reasons. I don't know when we're going to get to that, but uh, but at any rate, uh, he he's kind of in on uh, on bringing the agents toward them. So they're hiding in the walls, and it's interesting too, in the sense that like you know, while all this is going on, like I think it's Morpheus maybe as he's scaling the walls coming down, and it does look really graphic, like graphic in the sense of like graphic novel comic books where it's like just black screen and then this narrow shaft that we see the characters coming through as it pans down it's really cool looking uh, but it's morpheus that kicks up a bunch of, a bunch of dust which falls on uh cypher joey pantaleano's character who then sneezes again giving away their position that they're in the walls because he's in on it interesting thing about that too is that apparently um lawrence fishburne when they were shooting the sequence just after where or seen just after where he bursts through the walls and confronts agent smith there was so much like aerial dust in the shot because they wanted that to be an effect in like an environment like tone setting kind of thing but lawrence fishburne was struggling through the entire sequence because he kept sneezing that <laughs> sequence is so good when he like the camera on fishburne's body as he's falling onto like agents but like through the wall is so cool but the dust and the toll that it took on his body reminds me of something that I read where this basically this movie was very physically challenging for everybody Mm -hmm. Uh, in order to prepare for the fight scenes all of the actors went through rigorous pre-production training, but Keanu Four months of training. Yeah. For mu- yeah. Months. Keanu had like issues with a herniated disc and had to have surgery and it limited his ability to do like kicks in a lot of scenes. Uh, Hugo weaving uh, like injured himself. There were stuntmen who 
injured themselves doing some sequences. So it sounds like this movie was very physically taxing on everyone involved. And Carrie Ann Moss playing uh, Trinity, apparently very early on in the production, sprained her ankle, but didn't tell anyone for fear of being recast. So she shot a lot of this movie on a sprained ankle, which is oh, incredible. Dang. She's, yeah. Like, and she did all of her own stuff. Like, like, yeah. Amazing performance from her. Um, so, yeah. And you can really, I mean, I think there's something to be said for protections for actors on sets and like we would hope that pr- productions don't you know aren't physically or like traumatizing performers but you know it, it looked it looked good so I guess it was maybe worth it I don't know <laughs> yeah I guess in my reading I didn't get anything that that lent the sense that the actors felt that they were being subjected to harm so much as these were just like physically demanding things when they also had like a Keanu actually had that that back issue when he went into filming Hugo weaving was actually taken out of the, out of the mix for a little while because he slightly injured his ankle. And then they discovered he had polyps that needed to be removed. Yeah. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of different things in the mix, not just the fault of the movie. I don't, I don't totally, totally. And I think Keanu, at least what I was reading in a very quick glance, he was like very insistent on continuing his training because he was very Mm -hmm. committed to being prepared for the sites, fight scenes and everything like that. But but yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, all of the the stunt work, the choreography looks so good. And I really also even, sim- well, conceptually simple shots, I think are done so well. Like whenever um, people like hallways, uh, like run it, like hallway running is, is so good. Like when they like at the beginning, Trinity is running down the stairs. It's sort of this cool shaky camera effect. There's some moments where Neo's like, running through some stairs and hallways. And I think all of that is blocked, blocked so well. There was a moment I didn't pick up the first time I watched it, but it's during the kind of funny dojo sequence when Morpheus fights Neo and everyone's like, Morpheus is fighting Neo, come, come watch, when they're like both plugged in. And I didn't notice this the first time, but Morpheus is kicking Neo's ass. And then Morpheus basically says, you know, is it your body, you know, is your body physically, is my body physically moving faster? No, like my mind is working faster. Like we are not in a physical space. We're in a digital space. And I thought that was such a great setup for how Morpheus or how Neo and these folks jacking in can sort of like manipulate the world around them in various ways. And I thought what a great little bit of world building to put in and sort of a way to explain and teach Neo his powers in this kind of in goofy looking training sequence that I think is really fun, but I just didn't pick up on that moment of, you know, teaching Neo that he is in this digital space and he can use it to his advantage like the agents. Yeah. And it's one of those things where there's no wasted time. There's, there's no reason to have a fight sequence if it doesn't tell us something about the characters. Pretty much every instance of a fight in this movie tells a, a character learns something or gains further insight into what's going on, which is, is really great. There's no superfluous action. And also, yeah, I mean, just the action in general. I mean, it was, yeah, Christine, as you said, it's uh, Yen uh, Wu-Ping, who initially refused to work on the film, and even after reading the script and liking it, hoped that asking for an exorbitant fee would turn off the Wachowskis, uh, but it didn't. Um, so he next formulated uh, an obstacle where he would be, uh, an impossible request where he would be <clears throat> attached to the project only if in charge of every fight scene, um, which basically the Wachowskis were like, yeah, okay, still. So kind of like put up or shut up. If you want these demands, then go ahead and do it. And then he did it. He wound up really adoring the film. And I think his work is really pronounced in it, not only via the cable work and all this amazing choreography, 
but because it, 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 it's also paired with the direction where, where it's, it, you know, in a lot of modern fight films, <clears throat> or, or fighting films you see kind of like very quick cuts of just like you know punch by punch every impact and everything like that whereas this usually opts for a wider angle shot where where we can see like multiple different jabs and shots and punches all within one sequence which is a little more thoroughly choreographed and involves a lot more work and is a lot more satisfying to watch because you're seeing that there is a tenacity to the way that they're doing it instead of like okay set up the camera here's a punch all right we're good set up the next shot here's a kick it's like it's all one spectacle uh, that is unified within the one shot and really enhances and and draws attention to the choreography and athleticism involved. It's something that we don't see a lot of these days and something that harkens back a lot to Kung Fu films, which was their intention. So on the whole, uh, I think, yeah, it's it's really satisfying to watch these kind of fight scenes play out in an era where we're seeing an increasingly limited perspective of a fight cinematically in, in a lot of current cinema because of opting for quicker cuts and, and smaller, shorter shots. It allows more breathing room. And uh, connecting to that idea of, of creative extended shots and things like that, um, in thinking about some of the visual effects techniques that were used for this movie, something I learned for the first time is the, the Matrix was known for popularizing uh, this bullet time, which is mm-hmm. allowing a shot to progress in slow motion while the camera... So the the shot is progressing in slow motion while the camera appears to move through the scene at normal speed, which immediately made me think of, like, fucking Zack Snyder and, like, his, like, use of slow-mo. And it, like, it, mm-hmm. the bullet scenes... And I think it's referring to the the scene where neo dodges the bullets as agent smith is uh pursuing him and has already shot him but then he gets up and then he starts um slowing down time and then you see the ripple of the bullets going through the air and i guess uh, also in the initial like shootout scene where trinity and neo go into the building uh to save morpheus where uh so a lot of examples of, of slow-mo and this, this technique of bullet time. I read a more detailed ex- explanation of this visual effect and couldn't fully wrap my head around it. But it, like as far as the technical uh, steps that go into filming something like this, but it definitely uh, sounds like a really cool technique. And, it, and it, it really pays off in the movie. I think all the slow-mo in this movie looks so freaking good. And there's also a nice, wonderful combination of, yeah, of, of I, I don't know how much, it's sort of, I guess, the practical effect in a lot of these action sequences is the physicality and the physical performances of actors combined with the visual effects uh, of this technique like bullet time that add a nice harmony and combination of, of uh, computer technology and digital effects and kind of the more concrete physical physical performances that the actors are are doing and also in terms of like the iconic scene you're referencing which everyone thinks of with this movie is you know the agent firing upon neo we're seeing the you know the the ripples of like uh you know uh the bullets carving their way through the air as they jut past him and he he launches backwards in this really cool like back splay and move and it, it the camera navigates it in a 360 degree pan which was 
I forget how many cameras. It was like dozens of cameras that were all aligned around him in a circle that would all take several frames per second. And then they stitched them together um, to form that like sort of three-dimensional pan in slow motion or in, in real time <laughs> depicting what we're seeing in slow motion. Again, this is really difficult to talk about and really technical, but like it was, it, it's kind of the first instance I can think of where we see in any movie ever, uh, slow motion in the round i guess sort of the first time that we ever see one focal point of a slow motion sequence where the camera is moving around the entire scenario as opposed to like one static shot of slow-mo uh which is perhaps what we're more used to up to this point and it's something that is utilized utilized a lot today um so i think in that sense it's really kind of uh pretty groundbreaking filmmaking and 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 iconically remembered for that reason because it was sort of the first time we were seeing this sort of this sort of cinematography via the the ingenuity and advancement of uh of cg and of both cg and practical filmmaking married together within uh, a film at that point i i it's it's just fucking wild it's really something to see and it still holds up as amazing every time for me so connor just shared this amazing photo of a bullet time rig, which shows exactly what you were explaining, Dave, essentially kind of this crescent or this half circle of what it looks like all cameras trying to capture this one. And then you have kind of what looks like a basketball hoop. This is wild. And then on the outside is all green screen. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have some wonderful camera, like, setups to capture this bullet this phenomenon of bullet time um whereas i'm sure i don't know who what techniques are would like would be used in a, like a Zack snyder film but i'm sure it's much quicker to achieve this now and wouldn't require a huge rig and setup like it did like 20 years ago yeah it's 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 groundbreaking for a reason it was the first time it was tried and it's you know it's spellbinding because of its ingenuity as opposed to seeing it used pretty much all the time now because of the established foundation that this provided. It inspired the, the Max Payne video game series, which came after this, so. Which is aces through and through. It's a great game. Also, the scene in X-Men Days of Future Past when they introduced Quicksilver, which I think is like one of the coolest scenes. Definitely, it feels like the bullet time successor scene. So many ways that this movie laid the groundwork for really cool visual effects in like so many movies to come. Both and I think action. it's a testament to how something can be parodied to death and still look amazing and still be incredibly relevant and Big still time. be interesting. That's, yeah, that's a great point too, because the Matrix pops up, as you all mentioned at the beginning of the episode, it like pops up everywhere and is so highly referenced and was so uh frequently referenced so short like in such a short turnaround after the movie had come out so and yet its elements can still feel fascinating and fre- um and fresh when you watch it and rewatch it but yeah i mean i guess kind of going continuing the line of like thinking about action sequences i think something that i had been thinking about specifically was not only the scene at the end when Neo is facing off with Agent Smith and is getting fired at and dodging the bullets and the wonderful demonstration of bullet time, but also was that 
other scene when Neo and Trinity first uh, walk into the to the big office building and the the kind of epic shootout happens and all of the the stunt work that it goes into that scene. I think we had been I think maybe we had brought up this point earlier in thinking about um, like movies that rely a lot on guns and like the line that Neo has in the movie, like, I think we need more guns. And then we think about kind of Keanu's career with um, the, uh, what's the series he does? I've John seen Wick. John, John Wick. Wick. Yeah. I was like, I've seen two of them, but I can't remember. Um, and how I feel like this movie also has like a history of being incorporated into conversations uh, that raise the question of like depiction of guns and gun violence in movies and, and how does it, and or whether or not it it reinforces uh, gun culture or this sort of fetishization of of guns, um, and kind of revisiting that scene and the way this movie incorporates uh, weaponry and like how we kind of sit with that uh, this day and age. Yeah, it's a scene where they roll into this um, <laughs> this lobby. They're going to rescue Morpheus, who has then been abducted by the agents and. Um... They walk in with this, you know, obscene amount of guns. I mean, so much so that the metal detector goes off and uh, the one guard asks, like, uh, can you remove your your jacket, please? And he just reveals that he's got like 10 or 15 guns strapped to him. And the security guard's response, holy shit. And then just this blowout where it it is a ruthless, like, kind of valorizing blowout in the sense that, like, these are just human beings. They're not fighting agents right now. These are just humans that are plugged into the matrix who are obstructing their mission and they plow through them with all these bullets and stuff. So it's a little weird. Yeah, the, the, a friend I was watching sense. this with, sorry, she was like, okay, if, if Morpheus and his team are so concerned about saving human lives, that body count was so high. You would want to minimize collateral damage, right? I was right? like, yeah. yeah, I guess that's a good point. But yeah, I mean, it, it's still a stunning sequence. It's really great. I mean, at the end, you know, there's this, really like awesome, like kind of like rave based, like EDM music that's pumping through as they're going through this like awesome slow-mo sequence and everything's exploding around them as they're doing cartwheels and like quickly doing away with like this SWAT team who are like expertly trained within the reality of the matrix, but they have powers beyond that because of their programming and everything else. Uh, and their awareness of the matrix, and how to bend his physical rules. And then it all just like cuts to this like silence as, as Trinity, we get a shot of Trinity, like her heels just sliding up against the bag that they have. Uh, and then they walk into the elevator, the elevator closes, and then we just get this static shot of like the completely shot up and like blown to bits lobby that they were in as one of the pillars starts like the tiles on it just crumble to the ground right before the cut. And that was apparently something that just actually happened. They didn't plan. They, that wasn't a practical effect. That just happened at the end of the shot that they set up that static establishing shot after the action. And they were like, well, that's perfect. And it oh, is. I believe they tore that set to shreds. <laughs> that's but that that little that little detail is like a happy accident. Um, as it applies though to like yeah conversations about gun violence and everything else, this movie was really really bashed uh, when it came out because of its close proximity to Columbine. There was this gross misunderstanding about the shooters in Columbine who they were painted in the media interpretation and the cultural interpretation as being these sort of like picked upon nerds who who retreated to like you know, the internet and retreated to violent video games. And that basically nourished their their want for a kind of like retribution through violence. And that's absolutely untrue. 
if you if you actually know about the shooters, these were kids that were relatively popular and had friends in all fr- all 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 social cliques and strata of their high school, including a group of like kind of goth kids who were tr- who were then painted in the in the media as the quote trench coat mafia, very in line with the wardrobe and attitude of this movie. But uh, you know, I. It's a difficult thing to say because I do have my criticisms of like the John Wick series as far as gun violence is concerned now, but I think that The Matrix was unfairly painted into a corner in terms of inspiring something that had nothing to do with what it had to say because it, it that wasn't what these kids, uh, you know, Eric and Dylan, uh, the shooters at Columbine were about. They they were just about infamy. They wanted to create an event that would make them infamous. It wasn't about subverting the system or it wasn't about uh, you know, glamorizing weaponry. It wasn't about uh, shooting down jocks, even though Gus Van Sant's Elephant would have you believe otherwise, which is why I hate that movie. It, it, it was far more like nebulous and just an issue of like children, children who wanted to be infamous with access to high powered weapons, uh, who just wanted to to create a stir um, and who, who weren't targeting anyone in particular. It was just about death. Uh, whereas this movie is about something highly specific and is... It, it, it is a fictional reality that we're presented to. I mean, obviously, there, as we're discussing, there are human casualties in the shootout, but it is in an effort to, you know, free uh, an entire society of enslaved human beings from the system that has opposed them or uh, has been opposed upon them. So I, I don't know. To, to blame this movie for things like not uh, for like Columbine and stuff like that, I think is uh, a sketchy move. And, and frankly, to blame media in general for for violence is something that hasn't been backed up in any psychological report that's been published in the United States or elsewhere. So I, I think that argument is kind of bullshit, but I do have my criticisms of John Wick at the same time in that regard. So I don't know, mixed bag. I would say the matrix is perhaps not as guilty of that as, as I suspect John Wick is, although I don't think neither of the, either of them are necessarily quote unquote guilty of that. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's sort of like, it's, I think it's interesting to look at with this movie that just has so much like, baggage as far as the conversation that was and I had like completely forgotten until I was like doing some research for this movie like that that the matrix had come out but right before Columbine yeah and the, that whole backstory but I, I was, was like a month about before it so yeah more in the context of like discussions around the John like John Wick series and mm. and the use of guns within that movie but yeah I mean like it's a very I feel like we could go down like a whole <laughs> rabbit hole as far as thinking about the 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 conversation and debate that has that has been in many circumstance unduly unfairly put onto films video games in the like very simplified correlation people try to draw between depictions of violence in video games and movies and and real life especially as that conversation has only become increasingly complex yeah yeah certainly especially recently um, but, uh, but yeah, thanks for, thanks for delving into that, Dave, in, and I'm sure that's a, yeah, that's a discussion that could, could go on, uh, much longer than the time we have here. Um, but, uh, some other questions I was kind of thinking about was, uh, or included, um, or I guess returning back to a point that Sam had brought up as far as the dialogue, uh, and how it holds up. Uh, I was wondering, if there were other aspects, Sam, about the way the about the screenplay or about the dialogue that kind of just annoyed you or like you didn't feel like 
was written very, very well. Um, could you, could you maybe get into that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's like not written well, or if it's just like, that's a weird thing to say. Um, like the, I know Kung Fu in that moment. Like I, I get it, but it was also like, (laughs) like, okay. Um, and then there's also just like moments. So when Trinity, Neo, and Morpheus are escaping and they're on the helicopter. And well, actually, I guess it's um right before they rescue Morpheus. And uh Neo has that like machine gun. And he's just like shooting up the building where the agents are. Um, and Agent Smith is just like, no. <laughs> just like laughed out loud oh i love that line okay fair enough there's just like so many things like that that i just i i couldn't i i just i just laughed out loud but on the at the same time i think my favorite character in this movie was the oracle and her conversation with neo it just like blew my mind because it was so deep and so well written so it's just like yeah you you win some, you lose some. Um, I would say the movie loses more, but <laughs> I enjoyed that conversation. <laughs> yeah, and I guess, um, like, yeah, what, I guess to the group, what characters really stick with you? I think Keanu got kind of ridiculed for a long time for his performance and, like, his, what many argued was sort of this, like, wooden uh wooden performance which you know it's like Keanu has his range and I I I thought he was unfairly criticized for this performance but I I guess if anyone wants to give their take on Keanu's performance or or just talk about characters that really stuck out to them uh or that they found particularly compelling be it Neo or not well re Keanu I think I think that's a pretty, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, he, he is, he's an actor with, uh, I, I would say, and it would agree only so much range, but I think it's fittingly cast here because this is a character that is, uh, he is an audience surrogate being thrust, well, an audience surrogate as well as, you know, a prophetic figure, but uh, in, in both of those ways being thrust into a scenario that's entirely unfamiliar for, for audiences for the most part. Uh, in a way that I think it's it's really affecting and really appropriate that he be so kind of like almost detached as, as a means of high, highlighting his naivete and is coming to terms with and realizing the dimensions and rules of his reality at the same time that we are. So I think as an audience surrogate, it, it, it would be it, it would be inappropriate for him to be quippy. It would be inappropriate for him to be like one step ahead of the script. It would be inappropriate for him to be too lackadaisical about it. I think he he rides a very appropriate line of absorbing all this information for the first time, as do we. And I I I think that I like that positioning of him as audience surrogate, Um, because I feel like people criticized his performance. That was like, oh, Keanu is just constantly reacting. And it's like, well. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, because yeah. like, your life is turned fucking upside down. How else are you trying to process information besides react to it? And I'm sure facial expressions will be constantly like, yeah, changing as you're trying to like internalize all of this intense information. 
Well, and thinking about who else to cast as Neo, it's like Will Smith. I mean, maybe there was, you know, I'd be curious to see that movie, but like Johnny Depp, Nick Cage, be so curious to see these movies, but Neo can't be a character that overrides the, the script pace. Like he is, I think Keanu does a great job. Dave, as you mentioned, audience surrogate reacting, fitting in. And that's set up really well by the story of somebody who is literally learning how to be a human at the age of 20, however old he's supposed to be after living his whole life inside of a simulation. So I think script wise, they're setting him up, kind of giving him a lot to fall back on. Um, and as someone is, that they point out is brought out of the matrix later than they normally mm-hmm. quote unquote free a mind. So the script, I think does a great job of giving Keanu so many favors um, to, I think really perform the hell out of this role. And can I also just say, like, later haters, whether you like the sequels or not, this dude um, had three movies, is going to be in a fourth. So, like, yes, I'm protective over Keanu, but, like, again, later haters, doesn't matter. Well, I... I, uh... (laughs) But does it? But does it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I, I would say there are other examples where that kind of attitude is appropriate, like the Die Hard series. But with the, the Matrix, I'll give Keanu a pass. Yes. Because he does try in each one, which I'll give him credit for. Um, as far as understanding our characters, though, everyone. I mean, uh, Trinity's amazing. She's a really in-depth character, really motivated, really, um, really a truly powerful figure, not only in the sense that we see, as we discussed before this month, we not only see her as a powerful figure, but as a figure that has her own agency that can override situations and influence the story. We see Morpheus as sort of like, you know, very sage and very um, almost spiritual in his devotion to these prophecies, which I think is really interesting, um, especially as it stands at odds with some of the attitudes of his crew, especially Cypher, who is a really interesting character. That is uh, Joey Pantoliano or Joey Pants, as he's apparently known to everyone, although I thought that me and my friends made that up. But everyone Joey Pants? <laughs> Joey Pants. Pants, as you put on pants. Right. Joe, well, it's Joe Pantoliano, but yeah, Joey okay. Pants. It's um, all Joey Pants. Oh, that's who is, cute. Who is Cypher, who, um, you know, is... is Interestingly enough, a character who wishes that they took the blue pill is someone who's been brought out of the Matrix in this resistance fighting force who wishes uh, that he he could be re-immersed into the comfort uh, and, and false satisfaction of, of the Matrix uh, program, even to the degree, the degree that he betrays everyone, which is really cool. So I, the, I think all the, the characters steak really... Dinner, yeah. The steak dinner, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but I just want to mention the steak dinner scene is so wonderful. When he, you see that he's about to sell out the crew uh, and he's like, you know, some people say that breaking out of the simulation, the Matrix is finding your true... Or I don't know what the dialogue, but he's like, but this fake steak... Essentially, he's like, this fake steak tastes so good and so I, juicy. And if given the choice, I want this this life i know that i'm not eating the steak i know that i'm not sitting in this restaurant i know the blah 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 but eating the steak right now man ignorance is bliss because yeah. it is it you know it's programmed satisfaction and what a great way concept. to to root somebody with antagonistic intentions into the themes of your motherfucking story yes of like that is what the whole thing is about and it's like such a great I think for a character in so many other movies would be two-dimensional, would be a surprise, a shock to try to make people gasp in theaters is rooted in the themes of the movie. Oh, and you you stop and think in that scene. You're like, damn, 
like the choice of comfort or sacrifice and hardship, like that is a fucking hard choice. And like, you know that he is doing the wrong thing, but at the same time, it, the way that the scene is set up is it really creates a wonderful um, tension of choice. It's also not an out of the blue character turn that like is just like a plot point. It's like we we've seen that Cipher in the initial conversation with Trinity, which sets in motion the embeds of the film, is like you've been watching him. We might just be bringing him into this to be killed, and like uh, later on when he you know Neo confronts him it, 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 late at night and he's watching the code kind of just descend and is hypnotized by it. He just like makes mention of like. I'm sure you're thinking what I was thinking this whole time. Why, oh, why didn't I take the blue pill? And just like cementing that this character has these doubts really makes the payoff of him betraying them that much more substantive as opposed to it just being like a a sudden plot twist and like character turn that is unearned. And it also makes you think about Morpheus as a leader and this whole resistance movement of how much free will, how much free will did trinity have like which time cypher says yeah it's like oh you call this freedom all i do is what he tells me to do yeah 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 and like i i know i have my feelings about morpheus as a leader and as a boss aka so compelling as a leader um i think the movie does a wonderful job of also planting seeds or like giving more shape to morpheus's character where like you see him so devoted it's like while he expects his crew to follow him and be committed to this cause he takes up this devotion to the idea of neo being the one but i think the way that fishburn communicates morpheus as a character sort of plant a a complex like give a complexity to that as well it's like you're watching this character who's literally sacrificed everything for this cause and therefore needs to make meaning of his own experience. And that meaning making is being like, I'm going to locate and train this person who is foretold to be this new leader who's going to take us, or like this, you know, the one who's going to take us out of this state of, of oppression. Uh, and, and I think that like, and again, I don't know what the movie's, do to Morpheus as a character later on and maybe they explore that more but I think the movie does a great job of like uh yeah that like communicating that there's probably a lot more going on in Morpheus's head as far as like this need to feel purpose but maybe there being seeds of of uncertainty within his own psyche and within his own mind as well well that that to me is the thing that I think is does make his character maybe a little less three-dimensional than the other characters actually is his devotion to that prophecy. Um, and I understand his function within the story. Someone has to believe it that hard, especially when we as an audience are trained to doubt it from here and there. Like when Neo is told that he's in fact not the one by the Oracle. So therefore the prophecy isn't right. But then it's reversed when Neo is on the verge of death and Trinity says, you know, that the, the Oracle told her via the prophecy that I would fall in love with the one which I also, I have my problems with that I'm going to get to in just a moment. But <laughs> as far as Morpheus goes, I, I think it flattens his character a little bit. But so the, like, the, uh, yes, I would agree 100% that on paper, a character who is uh, is completely insistent and 
single-mindedly insistent on the fact that Neo is the one. But I think this is where, and again, maybe I'm reading what I want to read. This is where I feel like Lawrence Fishburne's performance adds a complexity to it, where you see Neo leave the Oracle and the expression, it's like Fishburne kind of smiles, but there's this like, I don't know, the sadness and there's something communicated in his eyes that tell me that like he wants to believe what he's telling people. Like, I, I don't know. There's layers, I think, to his like insistent and devotedness. And I think it's communicated in Fishburne's perf- facial performance. And, and again, maybe I'm just imposing what I want for the character onto the character, but I, I think... I think Ferk Fishburne is such a compelling performer and I think that is communicated like in his in sort of subtle gestures and in his face. But again, I'm yeah. really wrong. That's my only hesitance in that that criticism because I do think that Fishburne does such a good job of making us believe that he believes it. Um, so okay. it, it kind yeah, of so elevates it beyond the page a little bit, actually, in his acting. So to, so to, to his credit, he does make what I feel is ultimately a pretty two-dimensional character more interesting. So yeah, kudos to Lawrence Fishburne in that regard. I'll, but I would agree with you that on paper, the way the character is written is being pretty single-mindedly devoted to this purpose or this this belief it does diminish the, yeah, the like contours of his character. It denies him doubt which is unfortunate at least at least in the writing but you know as you said fishburn does exude that in a way that's unwritten which is and again again, i might be imposing my own expectations for where i would want the character to go but um yeah i mean like see i think that's what's kind of great about this movie is that i like you can get like locked into wonderful avenues of conversation and exploring the the characters of this movie, the themes of it. I think it it's there's infinite possibilities with with I think dissecting the movie and, and talking about it. But I guess to to kind of round out the conversation, are there other any other scenes or details that you that you all wanted to touch on uh, before we close out? Things that really stuck with you? A scene that made my jaw drop the first time I saw it is when the helicopter crashes into the skyscraper and you see the glass panes ripple. Like my jaw drops like this came out in 1999 and this looks top tier, you know, 2021 special effects level. Like awesome. My mind was blown. And then also rewatching it. It's like there, you know, we talked about reflections Lots of movies handle mirrors or glass or, you know, ways looking through, but also just, I don't know, reminded me of the scene where Neo is, um, takes the red pill, sits in the chair and sees the mirror uncrack itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I don't know. It's like it, that, watching the mirror cracking itself scene, you know, other reflections in Morpheus's glasses. Definitely. You um, said you hated that. <laughs> I I think it's a little overdone, but I think it, it made me appreciate a little more this idea of like there's, I don't have a final period to this sentence, but there is something there with like glass, mirrors, reflection. And I just think that scene where the helicopter crashes into the building, the glass ripples is just out fucking standing. It's amazing. And they did a ton of research as far as like which explosives would best blow out glass in like a radial, a radial circumference within that effect when it crashes into it after that shot where Trinity is flying toward the other building. And it's just incredible looking. 
I mean, there's so many moments in this movie that are are just jaw dropping for a movie that is what what is it now? Twenty two or no? Twenty two? Is it twenty two? Yeah, it's twenty two. Oh yeah. my god! Oh, I'm so old. It's twenty two <laughs> years old, which is incredible. Yeah, it looks great. Yeah, I mean, and hey, listeners, if you have long history with this movie, please send us an email and tell us what you think about the Matrix. Maybe you hate this movie. I don't know. But I would love to know any perspectives that other people have on, um, yeah, their relationship with this movie. Yeah, Dave. Well, I mean, speaking of perspectives, there is one problem, one glaring problem I have with this oh, movie. Oh, yeah, we got to get to the glaring problems. Yes, I mean, yes. I, I, I love this movie. I, it's fantastic. It's totally entertaining. It's captivating every time. And like, well, like we've discussed and just finished discussing, the practical effects merged with available technology at the time creates this almost like beautiful and very navigable merger of um, of what we're actually seeing versus what is digitally implied. Things like Jurassic Park, Connor, where it's like we, there is equal measure practical stunt effect and CG, uh, CG interruption and things like that. And I think it, it harmoniously blends the two really well, especially for an action movie. Um, but the one big problem that I have as far as the movie is the prophecy and uh, Trinity's participation within it, that she basically that at the, at the end of the line, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like softly alluded to, she won't tell Neo, but the Oracle told her about how she intersects with this prophecy. But ultimately what it means is that, uh, and what she was told is that she would fall in love with the person that was the one. And we get none of that in their characterization with each other before that moment. Yeah, that's not built. You're totally right. That's not built up at all. <laughs> like there, I, I feel like she, you know, maybe initially, maybe when he's first brought into the world or when Cypher is saying like, you've been like in the first moment of the movie, it's like Cypher saying like, you like watching him, don't you? And like, you know, that being sort of like an underling, like a seedling of like what, what could be as far as that being her, um, her role within this this grander prophecy is that she falls in love with the one, which indicates that he is in fact the one. Uh, but we don't see kind of like that tenderness or that fondness emerge throughout the movie, which is a problem for me. And we and I, you mentioned uh, earlier about how Trinity such a great character is for as far as given agency and autonomy over like circumstances around her, and this is like the one thing that she's given no agency in that kind <laughs> like, of reduces all of that. Yes. Says you will fall in love with this dude. Right. Even though as far as storylines go, you've had, there's been nothing to communicate <laughs> any sense of chemistry or like romance or whatever. And then it's just like, as he's dying because he's being killed by agent Smith within the matrix and they're being besieged by uh, the sentinels in the ship. It's just like, Neo, you can't die because I love you. And the Oracle told me that I would love the one. And we haven't had any real chemistry thus far, but I'm going to kiss you after you're dead. And now you're alive because the Oracle said so, even though we've kind of been trained to doubt (laughs) fundamentally what the Oracle is saying as established fact rather than, you know, prophetic, uh, self-fulfilled sense of fate. You know, it just it feels a little too at odds with how the prophecy influences other characters. But that's Hollywood movie. Maybe that was like, you know, thrown in. It's like, well, to get people invested, you gotta, you know, you gotta have the love story or whatever. Not not excusing it. I think that's such a great point. Especially (laughs) because it's a bummer because it does seem relatively like a shared sense of like respect and like platonic 
co-investment in their mission as opposed to suddenly at the end of the movie, right when she needs to be in love with him to fulfill this prophecy, she is, even though yeah, we haven't I mean, they make a great before. team, but that love story plot is definitely shoehorned in. And again, I don't know what, you know, happens. Is their love story uh, developed in the next movies? Yeah, I'm afraid it is. And it oh. gets real. It, yeah, <laughs> oh, it just gets real. You know, don't worry. Don't worry about it. If you, if, if anyone listening or if anyone hosting the show has only seen the first movie, just don't watch it. You don't have to because it doesn't give you anything. And here's the thing. Like, we've been talking so much about, like, um, like the notion that, like, this movie is incredible for its merger of, like, practical stunt work, which is, like, breathtaking on its own right, merged with CG. Um, kind of reminds me of like Fury Road. Like, you know, it's just like you you can, or Jurassic Park. Again, there can be this harmonious merger of like limited CGI to enhance great practical stunt work and filmmaking. But in the sequel, the direct sequel, Matrix Reloaded, which I watched yesterday, there are full scenes where it drops out from like the filmmaking style to present us with a video game cutscene. Like it's, li- it, every character is CG rendered. There is no compositing. These are all just creations of a computer. And it feels that way, which robs it of its authenticity, especially when it cuts back to the actual actors, which this movie never does. Yeah, I've seen bits and pieces of Reloaded, and I think I just was not interested. I just, yeah, it's just like a combo of hearing such bad things and just being not invested. And it's also a story you don't have to tell. Once Neo is the one, what else are you going to say? I mean, he, we know he's go- it's, it's the prophecy. He is the one. He will defeat the Matrix. What well, is the point I'm of intrigued. telling more stories? <laughs> well, okay. So he, what I had read was that it kind of unravel, like that the next movie is sort of unravel the notion that he's the one, which I find compelling because... It kind of doesn't, though. <laughs> like, a, go ahead. A prophesized savior is, like, not necessarily <laughs> the, like, storyline I would necessarily... Like, a hundred percent go for me either. But yeah. Like, <laughs> but, um, so I, I'm intrigued by that idea of like, I like that idea and tension of like imposed expectation to like conform to a narrative and somebody challenging and like confronting that Im- imposed that notion of fate or like that sort of mm-hmm. imposed role that one might play. And so I think that could be make a compelling story, but you know, I, it could, who knows? and it should have, and it should. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, maybe Matrix Four will like, like, make everything right again. I'll just say that I think this is a movie that could have been a one installment movie and could have ended at the perfect point. You know, it would have oh, ended with so. the understanding that the prophecy is fulfilled, and and there you go. That's that's the story. That's that's what you need. Um, so blowing it up beyond that, I think. I mean, unfortunately deconstructs the the original concept which is what people were drawn to especially with diminishing returns as far as quality yeah. via this franchise for me I, I think what's a shame is that it sounds like the matrix never had its empire strikes back moment no where the sequel you know and I'm, apology i mean you know listeners you know me love star wars to bits compared and already to the matrix very easy movies to you know think about together but empire is so character focused very little plot focused if you're thinking about the stakes of the galaxy and the empire and the war with the rebellion. Um, it's a character driven journey. It's a shame that the Matrix One set up all these really wonderful, interesting characters, and that it's a shame that as someone who hasn't seen two or three, um, doesn't have and choose, 
you know, tries to flesh out backstory instead of character focused journey. Sounds like you might just have to to just uh, write the new Matrix. I w- uh, no, I wouldn't dare. <laughs> you might have to just. Dave, you are the one <laughs> to rewrite. <laughs> I know, Kung two, Fu. three, and four. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, folks, that was a wonderful ride. That was the Matrix. And again, like if you have any, uh, st- you know, history with the Matrix, let us know. Any thoughts? Uh, send us any emails. Check out our socials. Um, once again, we are so excited to be part of the Movie John Podcast Network. Check out all those other wonderful podcasts. And, um, yeah, just, uh, just let us know your thoughts. What are, what are our socials? Butter with, with that? that podcast at gmail.com. Butter with oh, that yeah. one on Twitter, uh, which we don't do anything with, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and butter with that on Instagram and Facebook, where we are the most um, – active on wonderful well you heard it from here have a great uh whatever and uh we will catch you next week with our new theme bleep bloop he's gonna pop